HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And Henry James once wrote, There are few hours in life more agreeable than the hour dedicated to the ceremony known as afternoon tea. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. The English afternoon tea, of course. And certainly the most quintessential of English customs is without a question, afternoon tea. And the custom really is not as old as one might think. To tell us all about that and give us the history and the background of afternoon tea and all things tea is Elizabeth Knight. Elizabeth is an English tea master and former tea sommelier for the historic St. Regis Hotel in New York City. She's widely recognized as one of the country's foremost authorities on tea and entertaining. And Elizabeth founded Tea with Friends, tea tours that she has conducted, and possibly we can entice her to do again in the New York City area, where she shared her passion and knowledge about tea. She's also written a book of the same title, Tea with Friends, and several other books on tea, as well as a website devoted to all things tea. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Linda. So uh, tell me, what you to become an English tea master, what, what, what did that entail? Well, um... I went to London. Maybe I should back up. And what had happened is I was interested in entertaining with tea, and I had been for years. I once worked for a department store chain in Florida, and I had all of the special events that had to do with home furnishings, food, and entertaining. And it was fascinating to me how many times this topic was about tea. When Lord Wedgwood did his first American tour, he started at our store in Miami. And he talked about how really the birth of the British um, 
bone china industry came out of the need to find a ceramic that could take the boiling water needed to make tea. So I started studying that. And then, it, when it, and, and of course, they did an afternoon tea event at the stores. And I began to realize that if I wanted to know when I began to cater afternoon teas and I wanted to know how to do it properly, you had to go back to the source because it really is the British meal. Not everything served in it comes from England, but it was part of the British adventure. And they knew how to do it uh, better than anybody else. So one January, I found out that um, airfare to London was dirt cheap in January. Nobody wants to go. So I wrote ahead to places like um, Fortnum and Mason, which has, survived, mm-hmm. has provided uh, fine goods to the British Crown and anybody else who could afford it since the 18th century. They have their a very fine tea department. And I went to... Um, a number of the upper-end restaurants, uh, the, the Ritz and others, and wrote ahead and said, I'm um, interested in learning how to do this properly, and this is your custom. If I come, I'd like to sit down with the food and beverage manager or the tea buyer or both, and I have a list of questions. Surprisingly, everyone agreed to do that. So I got on a plane and went to London, and each person sent me on to someone else. And what was so astonishing is how... Um, it's really very uh, English attitude. As long as you were willing to be colonized by them with their version of being, this is the only and the proper way to do it. Extraordinarily <laughs> Interesting ge- use of words. Right? <laughs> well, they're extraordinarily generous. I was on the plane. Um, I remember I seated next to a, a Brit who worked on Wall Street, and he was, he was going home. And he said, and why are you going to London? Is this this your first experience? And I said, no, I've always been on a couple of times on business trips, but this is the first time where I'm the business person. He said, well, what are you in? And I said, I'm interested in tea. And he said, well, what do you do? Well, I cater afternoon tea parties. And he said, you what? (laughs) So I explained that. And I said, well, don't they do that in England? And he said, well, of course not. He said, everyone either does it at home or you go out to a hotel. Of course not. And... um, he said, you're really going to talk to people about tea? And I said, yes. And he said, they're going to think you're barking mad. That's hilarious. He said, but you're going to have a wonderful time. He said, just, he said, everybody wants to talk about tea. That turned out to be very true. I can remember being um, part of a program when Fortnum & Mason redid their kitchen, and for the first time they had a demo kitchen open to the public. I remember their tea buyer getting up and talking about how he had been given a blank check to go around the world and buy the finest teas to launch this new, um, what are we, we'd been doing in the U.S. For, for 20 years, demo kitchens. And I'm, I have never forgotten what he said. He said, in England, tea is like wallpaper. Everybody's got it, and nobody can tell you a thing about it. It's just part of the background. He said, you Americans are at least 15 years ahead of us in beginning to appreciate tea as an upscale, exquisite beverage that's as nuanced as wine. Hmm. So, so, that, you, but so you eventually found a, a, a tea master to study with, Exactly. Right? Thank you for getting me back on point. I checked with... Um, Mr. Brahma, who had a tea museum down in the Docklands, because this is where the tea had come in for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And you could call ahead, and he would give you a one-on-one tea course with tastings, um, talking about how do you brew it, where did it come from, what kind of pot, how did you do this. He, uh, at the end of that, he... uh, I was there for a couple of days, and then at the end of that, there was sort of like a quiz, and then he gave you a tea certificate. When I eventually moved to London, I started going to other 
companies that imported and exported tea. And I took one of the same trainings that their um, tea personnel took. And I thought by then I already knew quite a bit about tea, and I was shocked at how much I did still did not know. Hmm. So I've had I got certificate from that company too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that uh, I mean, uh, Britain had been importing teas from China from since the early 17th, yeah, 17th century. But tell us a little bit about the custom we know as afternoon tea, which, of course, is such a special thing. Everyone who travels to London usually goes to Brown's or some fancy hotel, exactly. you know, seeking out the afternoon tea ceremony. Um, first of all, the most important thing to know about it is there's a big difference between afternoon tea and high tea. When I lived in London, I met Mr. Twining, and he said, you Americans, he said, you come over here, and he said, you ring up the Ritz, and you want to make a reservation for high tea at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He said, that is not high tea. I want you to promise me whenever you talk about this, you will explain this first, and I crossed my heart and said I would. So afternoon tea got its name because it was originally served in the afternoon. What had happened is as time... As meals changed in England, let me back up. First of all, as you said, teas, teas imported into England in, I think it gets to London, 1657. And at first, it's a medicinal drink. Uh, it's alleged to be able to cure all kinds of things, from scurvy to the king's illness, which turns out is a form of tuberculosis. But it's not the meal for hundreds for over 100 years. It's You might take it with breakfast. You might take it with some toasted bread and butter, but it's still not a meal. That happens around the 1800s. Anna Maria, the seventh Duchess of Bedford, is usually given the credit for being the person who, quote, invented afternoon tea, but people were taking meals with it by then. And what she did, the the famous um, anecdotal story is, is that she noted in her diary that every afternoon, she would experience a sinking feel, what she described as a sinking feeling. Oh, and, don't we all? <laughs> well, yeah. So one day she instructed the staff to bring her um, a pot of freshly brewed tea and a plate of bread and butter sandwiches as thin as poppy leaves. And this is the really shocking part. It was to be served to her in her boudoir where she could relax. You just didn't do that. In that era, women would get up and they would be served um, a cup of tea or coffee on a tray in their bedroom as a sort of what they call in India breakfast tea to wake up. Mm -hmm. And then you would get dressed and put on your corset and your 40 pounds of petticoats and you would go down and run your household. Receive guests and in your salon. (laughs) All of that. But you did not have a tea meal. In her era, there was around... She was one of uh, Queen Victoria's ladies-in-waiting. So in her era, the dinner time got pushed back much, much later till around 7. So you have a gap between what you ate for breakfast and lunch, and then the distance between lunch and when you would have your final meal of the day was now five or seven hours added on to it. So of course she experienced a stinking feeling. She needed a snack. So this gets started, and she decides the idea of this little informal meal with little light snacks to tide one over was so great that when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert came to visit her at her home, she served them afternoon tea at Woburn Abbey. And you can still go to Woburn Abbey as, and look at 
her tea things and her lace tablecloth that's all on display. So the queen thought this was so charming, and because it was the queen, it again became very fashionable to do this new version of a tea meal. That's, so that's how so this that's gets started. Put into, into custom and place. And it's interesting because I'm sure most people, um, not having you know, read the background, all assume that the English have been celebrating or, or doing, have, you know, experiencing the custom of afternoon tea for centuries. And it really is not that. And 1850 is not that old. No, it's not. It's just really before the American Civil War. Right. It's the Victorian era. The other reason that tea catches on in the Victorian era is under Victoria, who then became Empress of India, the British were able to have their own tea plantations. So the price of tea drops, and now the middle class can do what only the upper class could afford. I mean, tea had been heavily taxed for centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and uh, tea, um, I mean, tea was drunk by the colonists when they came over and we were drinking a lot of tea here in America hence we had our little issue with the taxation and the absolutely. tea party right right absolutely and we were actually drinking more tea at the time we were a dutch colony than the english were drinking in england because it was the dutch who bring the tea. the portuguese first discovered tea and started exporting it to europe but it's the dutch who bring it to amsterdam and therefore then bring it to england and that primarily all came from China at that time. Yes, India it did. was not really growing that no. much tea, right? No. Yeah. Interesting. And still the primary source of tea. Yes, followed right? by India. Wow. So, as a tea sommelier at the Ritz Carlton Hotel, what did that entail? Well, actually, it was the St. Regis. Oh, St. Regis. I'm sorry, <clears throat> the St. Regis Hotel. You mentioned Ritz earlier. Yes, I have that, St. Regis. It, well, it was, it was very unexpected. I had attended a tea program. Bruce Richardson of the Elmwood Inn had come to present a tea program in the Astor Court, which is where they serve afternoon Uh tea. And it had gone very well, and the hotel was interested in doing a repeat program. And I had been contacted because I lived in the area, and Bruce had given them my name. And when I spoke with them, I said, you know, I really don't think the space lends itself to a stand-up lecture. When you look at where the kitchen is located and where the entrance and exit to the Astor Court is located, I think you'd be better served by having somebody go in that very intimate setting from table to table. And also, you have over 40 teas on the menu. Do most people really know what the differences are between black, green, white, oolong, what's a blended tea? Why don't you let me go from table to table? I'll work with the customers to see what their level of interest is in tea and help them choose something. And then I I also eventually went on to work with the food and service uh, beverage area to talk about what were the sort of foods that were served with particular teas, like tea and and you you can pair tea with food just like you can with uh, wine with food. Well, we'll get into some of that um, as we go on. so back to the English tea service. I, had to, I just had to ask mm-hmm. that question because I'm saying, what does a tea sommelier do? Well, at but, that time, um, there wasn't in, in the New York City area or even in large cities, there wasn't the sense of tea as a really exquisite, nuanced beverage the way wine was. They decided to call me the tea sommelier. 
I was simply thinking of myself as someone who could help explain the mystery of tea to people <laughs> who would really enjoy it if they just knew, you know, like the, like a tea that would be suitable for a, most coffee drinkers come in and think, no, no I don't want to be here. But yeah. when you'd say, well, what do you usually like to drink? What do you have the first thing in the morning? What do you have in the afternoon? Do you usually take it with milk? Do you usually take it with sugar? Okay, you might like to try this tea. Yeah, interesting. Very helpful, too. And I like the title. I think it's a classy title. <laughs> so what today, or even, well, back in the, in the um, mid to late 19th century, what was really what developed as the, the the afternoon tea custom? What would normally be served? It would depend upon the economic level, uh, and there were also a number of other meals that around, that arose around. It wasn't just afternoon tea. If it were uh, a well-to-do family, there would be like like Anna Marie the Seventh Duchess of Bedford. There would be in addition to the tea uh, by the time her time, there would have been not just a Chinese black tea. There would have also been a black tea from India. They were also drinking. Originally, they were drinking green tea, and then it was black. So there would have been usually an offer of a green and a black tea, whether it was a Chinese black or an Indian black. It became very patriotic to serve an Indian black when the Indians, when the Indian, India was an English colony, a British colony. So there would be that. There would be, depending, up for an afternoon tea, there would be always uh, freshly baked scones or crumpets. You, you've seen those uh, three-tiered servers that appear yes. on the table? Yes. That's a classic part of an afternoon tea, but that's not considered very upper class. That's considered a quote, as I learned in England, that's a very commercial presentation because at home you wouldn't have a three-tiered server unless you didn't have servants. And the oh. large houses did have servants. So there would be sandwiches first, uh, very thin. Originally, it would have been just uh, bread and butter and with a, a very simple cake. Uh, not, not what they, I discovered in England. They, they were all fascinated. Well, can you make an American cake? And I said, well, what's the difference between an American cake and what you've got? Well, you have three layers and two inches of icing. We don't do that <laughs> uh, unless it's a wedding. Um, but originally, it would have been just... Um, bread and butter, and it would have been um, either plain bread and butter, cold, sliced, with a, a jam or jelly, or uh, if, it, if there were more time, you might have a hot bread like a scone. Then it would, for an afternoon tea, it would be more elaborate. There would be generally three to five different kinds of little finger sandwiches and pastries. Tea sandwiches, as they Tea sandwiches. Because, and the difference for the tea sandwiches is they were not as hearty as the sandwiches that you might take out into the field for a picnic or if you were um, a worker in the field or in a mine. It, it gets... Um, changed over the years. There would have been um, another version of it. The afternoon tea would have been this very, originally, like I said, a very simple snack. And then it gets much more elaborate as the years go on because it becomes a way to have another um, opportunity to show off all the beautiful things that you own. When tea first comes into England, it's the first time that the West has seen those really fine porcelains also. They begin to import porcelains, they begin to uh, import uh, silks and other textiles, and then tea comes along with it. And then the English want to have their own version of those ceramic. Uh, th th there aren't enough to export to fill the demand for this. And this hmm. is as early as the 1700s. 
So they're beginning to develop special utensils for this, uh, things like a moat spoon, which is a spoon that has a long pointed end to unjam the spout, and then it has little holes in it to pick up the little floating leaves, leaves or the moats. Right. So all this, when you get all of these things, then you want to have a more elaborate meal to show them off. And it was also a way, during the Victorian era, you've got the Industrial Revolution. So all of a sudden, there are lots of people who have money, but are not aristocrats, but they can now buy the same things that have been handed down in families. So one of the ways to sort of put them in their place, if you were old money, was you'd have a very elaborate ceremony and they wouldn't know what to do with it. They might own all the pieces to serve it, but they don't know how to handle it. So it was a form of really class warfare, too. Hmm, Interesting. So eventually the afternoon tea filters down to the middle class, and the middle class begin to tweak it a bit. They begin to develop what's called a nursery tea. Children are given what's called cambric tea, which is tea with a lot of milk, and it changes the color of the tea to the color of a fabric called cambric, which is a light beige fabric. So children are given nursery teas, and they get at their nursery tea, it's a later hour than the adults were having an afternoon tea. At the nursery tea, it's really an early supper for the kiddos. They would serve um, uh, toast fingers, and they would serve uh, boiled eggs, soft-boiled eggs, and then they would get a very plain cake, and they would get a, a, a plain cake would be sort of like what we would consider a pound cake, mm-hmm. no icing, might have some fruit in it, dried fruit. And they would learn how to behave themselves at a table and how to handle a teacup. You know, all of those, those things that little girls played with, the tea services, that was so they could learn how to handle the it tea equipage. It yeah. had a purpose. Yeah. Because in the very beginning, it was the lady of the house who would blend the tea. It's because tea was a very expensive imported product. The tea caddies were boxes with lids on them with a little measuring cup at the top, a little round knob. And she kept the key to that on a little chain around her waist. Mm. One of the ways um, it was considered, she was the only one who was allowed to handle. There In the tea caddy, there would be one reservoir for green, one for black, and in the middle would be a little glass bowl to blend the two. Or if someone wanted only black, then she obviously didn't need the middle bowl. The butler would bring the water that had been boiled in the kitchen, and then that would be poured over the leaves. But it was the lady of the house who actually brewed the tea. It was the lady of the house. You know the, the expression, we talk about tea towels just to mop up things in the mm-hmm. kitchen. Well, in that day, in the early 18th century, the real tea towel was something that the lady of the house used to wash and dry her tea equipage because you wouldn't trust those expensive ceramic pieces to a ham-fisted maid. She used that. So, of course, the towels had to be very elaborate. They had to be embroidered. They had to be laced. They had Because they were on view. <laughs> because they were on view. And that was part of the whole story, too. And it's interesting that the... Um, Servants in those houses in the 18th century were among the first common people to acquire an appreciation for tea because they saw it being made, and they would often drink the dregs. And the servants signed contracts that they were allowed to sell the leftover tea leaves. That's how Fortin and Mason got started. They were servants who knew about this, not just the tea trade, but that was part of the contract. Hmm. And they would get the leftover uh-huh. tea leaves. And you right. could sell it further down the food chain. Very elaborate. <laughs> it's making me feel like my, my 
tea ball or my tea filters are just a little commonplace. I have all well, that it, fancy, that fancy porcelain. Although I do appreciate a good porcelain, but I want to talk about the porcelains, and then I want to talk about high tea when we come back after a short break. I went down to North Carolina Realized there was surely nothing finer Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed. You get the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. So what you want to do once you buy whole grain flour is keep it kind of wrapped so that oxygen can't get to it so it doesn't go rancid. But the good news about having that fat is that it has a lot of flavor. If you want, you can actually buy the wheat germ, for instance, and add it back to flours. But if you buy Bob's Red Mill product, it already has the germ in it, so you don't have to. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, we're back, and we're talking about afternoon tea. My guest is Elizabeth Knight. Um, Her book is Tea with Friends and Celtic Teas and uh, a couple more. I, I don't have them all. Let me see here. Uh, tea in the City, New York. Um, it, just fascinating topic, Elizabeth, and because there, uh, it is tea is so nuanced, and the topic just keeps getting more and more intricate as you describe it. I love the idea of how porcelains had to be developed for the boiling water. And um, you, in fact, were a representative for uh, Royal Dalton. I was. Uh, uh, porcelains. So this was all you had to, I mean, not only did you have to have fine teas, but you had to then have fine china. What a, what a procedure. What a, what a ceremony. In, in, interesting. Well, part of it was the, the, the Chinese had invented porcelain, which is a particular kind of clay that can be high, fired at a very high, high temperature, temperature, so it will stand high temperatures from something like boiling water. The English had long admired it, and it was exported east to west, but there wasn't enough to meet the, the European demand. So there were all sorts of experiments in different countries, each of them trying to come up with what the, what the Chinese knew how to do and obviously weren't sharing the secret. So in different countries at different times, people were making experiments. But in England, part of the problem was uh, one of the China manufacturers, I think as he described it, is all we could get was exploding teapots. They would pour the boiling water in it, and the, the things would literally crack. So somebody got the bright idea to create bone china. Bone china is actually porcelain clay to which you have added calcified bone ash. It's usually the long leg bones of a cow that's been um, heated and it becomes a powder. That strengthens it. Bone china is the thinnest possible clay. If you hold up, say, a plate in front of the light with your hand in back of it, you can see your hand Mm -hmm. clearly outlined. And you'd think anything that fine 
can't possibly be strong, but in fact, it's the strongest China money can buy. The thick stuff is usually not very uh, high-quality clay, so you can't fire it very high, so it chips very easily. Um, so it's the highest is bone china followed by porcelain and then is descending down is stoneware and then earthenware. Earthenware is the clay stuff that you buy to put your, fl- your pot of flowers in. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the Chinese had this secret for thousands of years and obviously there was no reason for them to share it. So the English industry finally comes up in the area called Stoke-on-Trent they figure out a different version. There had been clay in that area, and even the Romans, when they occupied uh, Britain for uh, 400 years, even they were potting there. So this area, they finally know how to do it. So you've got the perfect match. You've got the tea leaves. You've got the proper body to serve it in. And then this entire industry develops all around how do we set a gorgeous, proper tea table. Silversmiths. You right, need, first, you need servants. Uh, yeah, well, well, first, you need <laughs> servants. I've learned that one. Well, <laughs> you need servants. You just you just convinced me. I can't I can't have tea alone anymore. <laughs> and the thing that I discovered when I went both to England and to Japan is, when I was in Japan um, on a tea tour, uh, I was working for a, um, a woman to talk about tea in New York. And she had imported uh, very elaborate teas from China. And she also had a Japanese woman who was called, um, I think, the Queen's Ambassador. And she was teaching Western-style table manners to the Japanese who were going to be going to the West for business. And we have a whole different set of utensils and cutlery. She had grown up uh, during her college years. She had lived in the household of uh, an English lord and lady. And she told me that the whole idea of having the scones come out as you do it in a uh, three-tiered server in a hotel, she said, that's very commercial. And she said, do you know why? And I said, tell me. She said, in a proper home with servants, they're making the scones while you're eating the sandwiches. So the scones come out priping hot. Wow. I got to get that. I got to get one of those servants. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and by the way, my first trip to England, I met a woman who um, had written a tea book about um, uh, tea with the the Bennets uh, of Jane Austen fame. And she had an Airbnb in Laycock, which was just outside Bath. And I was asking her, um, first of all, you know, I had my whole list. I said, you know, first of all, is it a scone or a scone? And she laughed and said, well, it's a scone till it's gone. (laughs) And she said, it really depends upon which part of the country you're in. One's a southern pronunciation, one's a northern pronunciation, one's more Gaelic, one isn't. And she said, scone is really uh, a Gaelic word for meaning little stone, because that's what they look like, little brown stones. And I said, well, do you cut it in half, and does the jam go on first, or does the clotted cream go on first? And she said, well, you can start a civil war over that question. Interesting. We're, and we're going to talk uh, about why why that is in a minute. Um, but t- back to t- the teas. Mm-hmm. I mean, here they did all the research and got all the proper... Um, Equipment to, to serve mm-hmm. the teas. How you know? Tell me about the different teas that they would have access to. Uh, that changed over the centuries. First, it would have been green. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it would have been black. They noticed that on the long sea voyages, bringing the green tea out, it tended to mold. So they decided that they would sort of quote cook the leaves before they put it on the boat. 
So that that's a whole different um, discussion about what's the difference between white, green, oolong, and black teas. It's all the same leaf. It's just how do you treat it? When do you pluck it? What do you do with the leaf after it's plucked? So originally they're drinking green, then they're drinking black. When you're drinking black tea, um, the English had a long tradition of warmed milky drinks, like a syllabub with a warm milky drink with Mm -hmm. with, um, alcohol added to it. So it was natural for them to want to add, one, because it's a black tea, to add milk to it. Simply because they'd all, they had a tradition of warm drinks with milk in it. The, you don't see that traditionally in Asia. Yeah. That, well, so that you was, mentioned Japan. I mean, Japan, they have a whole different ceremony. They have a, a they very do. elaborate ceremony. They do. Um, so the milky teas are, then it's it's quite proper to have a milky tea. If you're English, yes. And part of that has to do with the way that they brew the tea. In, in England, um, Mr. as Mr. Brahma taught me the first time, you you because they drink mostly they, at the time historically they drank mostly black tea. Black tea needs uh, water brought to a, a rolling boil. You use that then to scald the pot. The deal is the kettles on the stove. When you can see the traditionally the way that they've done it is when the steam is shooting straight up, you know that the water's hot. You then take the teapot to the kettle, not the other way around because the heat will fall from the kettle if you take it off the stove. So then you pick up the kettle and you pour about an inch or two of tea in your pot and you swirl it around and you pour it out through the spout so the whole pot is warmed. You want the hottest water possible in contact with the black tea leaves. Then they leave in England, they traditionally leave the leaves in the pot. That's a bit like sitting in a taxi at the stoplight with the meter running. Mm. You're still paying for it. As long as the leaves are in contact with the water, it's continuing to brew. To brew. Right. So let's say the, the optimum time for the black tea that you like is a brew time of four to five minutes. I pour, we make a four-cup pot. I pour a cup for you. I pour a cup for me. And the leaves are still brewing. By the time we get around to our second cup, it's not the same cup of tea anymore. (laughs) So the English will do what they call, let's top it up with some milk. That's to help. By then, it's gotten much, much stronger and in some cases bitter. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of two things. It it got stronger and also they'd had this tradition of milky drink. Also, one of the, the stories about the tea leaves that I heard in various parts of the U.K. was when the leaves were first coming in and the hostess would have would brew the tea, the lady of the house, not everybody knew what to do with it. In some cases, they didn't bother to drink the liquid, but they spread the stewed leaves on the bread and ate them like hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> and the Scots said the English did that, and the English said, no, the Scots did that. <laughs> Again, a war. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, we have to talk about high tea because yeah, that was one of your your vows. Yes. So make sure you explain the difference between afternoon tea and high okay. tea. Okay. All right. There are many versions of the story, but the most important thing to know is what time is it. When I first lived in London, I learned the hard way to ask what time are you inviting me for tea because that told me what meal I was going to eat. Mm. If it's between three and five, it's afternoon tea, which is an elegant, dainty snack. Little little pastries, uh, maybe a slice of cake, maybe a little, very occasionally candy, but that's rare. Uh, Hot scones or pikelets, which are like little pancakes that with little holes all over the surface and they absorb uh, butter and you cut them in strips and 
put jam on it, and then three to five different kinds of finger sandwiches for a very elaborate tea. That's often served as a celebration for like a, a bridal shower or something, even in the UK, or something you would expect in a hotel or if you were invited to a very grand house. What's more typical is a high tea, and it gets its name from, there's several versions of the story, but one of the stories is afternoon tea is, another name for it is low tea, because it is served at a low table by an easy chair, and it's served in the afternoon. High tea is served on a high dining table. As Mrs. Isabella Beaton, mm-hmm. she was the Martha Stewart of the 19th century. Right. She once said that high tea was, quote, supper in all but name. There might be on that table um, a leftover joint of meat. There might be salads. There would always be bread and butter. There would be a simple cake, um, what Liza Doodle would call a plain cake. Again, a cake with no icing, we would call a pound cake. And, of course, a big pot of tea. It, it came about for several reasons. Um, people began to work in factories. Um, not everybody wanted to be a servant working in a home. They, would, they could make more money in a factory. When people came home from the factories and the fields or the mines, they were hungry. Mm. They a, little tea, a, a little dainty tea sandwich wasn't going to do it. No, right? and they were too tired to wait for dinner at 8. Mm. That would take an hour to be served, and there weren't servants generally. So they wanted a hearty meal when they came home, and it would be um, whatever was left over. Um, cold meats, pickles, um, sometimes a hot potato dish, uh, bread and butter, and a big pot of tea. It wasn't fancy. I had been surprised to read recently that one of the reasons that tea caught on with the poor in the early 1900s was that there, even as early as the 1800s, people didn't drink tea for breakfast. They drank ale in England. But there was an agriculture failure, and the price of the grain that went to make the ale went up, and the poor couldn't afford that anymore. But the prices of tea had started to drop and they could get bread and butter, so their meal might only be the comfort of a hot beverage, which was tea and bread and butter, but tea was still expensive. It gets cheaper, as I said, after uh, India became a colony. But mm-hmm. So you've got high tea, which is a working-class supper, or it's considered an informal supper for young people who were of a better um, socioeconomic class but just didn't want to sit through the tedium of a very formal meal. Interesting. So it's yeah. informal. And it's um, big, bigger portions. It's not a dainty snack for ladies yeah. who so, don't work. Um, and I always thought of I mean, today. You hear reference to tea, um, meaning as a, as um, another word as you had mentioned before for supper. Mm-hmm. So it's it still carries through that a you know a, a quick supper at night mm-hmm. is still still called tea. Right? When I lived in London, um, my office space faced an alley between two apartment buildings and I remember the first time I heard two little boys standing out in the alley um, saying well what did you have for tea and one little boy said I had frozen fish fingers and marmite on toast marmite to Mm -hmm. me is like salty jam but that was tea because it was the children's meal and then the parents would eat dinner when the whoever was the working person came home much later after the kids had already been fed and, and either put in their pajamas or put in front of the TV. 
So it had already descended from just not just a working class meal, but it's very practical now for a children's meal yeah, early, mm. or it's um, a casual form of entertaining. Interesting, yeah. Now we were talking when we, when you were talking about um, for tea, the afternoon tea, the differences between on the scones, clotted cream or, mm-hmm. or butter and regular cream, and you said it could start a civil war. That come brings in your book on Celtic teas. Mm-hmm. So what's what is the big difference there between the English and the and the Irish teas? Uh, well, the Irish claim to be the that they drink the best tea in the world, and they say that they they because they buy so much, they buy more than uh, one Irish person said to me. We buy the much better quality tea than that old lady in London gets. <laughs> um, a lot of the tea um, tea was considered very uh, precious in. Celtic teas would be Cornwall, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Mm-hmm. Much of the tea that came into England in the 18th century was stunningly expensive. They'd marked it up, I think, something like 18%. And it wasn't readily available, but people wanted it because they'd read about it and heard about it. And so what they did is, because they're on the seacoast, they smuggled it. A lot of the tea that was smuggled came into England through Cornwall. If you've read mm-hmm. uh, Daphne du Maurier's books about... Um, uh, I can't read, but what is it? Jamaica Inn and the Poldark series. There's a lot of smuggling. Well, a lot of what they brought in was tea and lace and whiskey, and it was hidden in coves and churches. What's different there is the clotted cream uh, originally comes from Cornwall. Clotted cream was evidently uh, a way of treating cream, uh, not treating it, it's a, a way of making uh, milk last for a long sea voyage. They believe now that the Phoenicians, who originally came out of Lebanon, brought clotted cream with them along on the sea voyages so they could have um, something to put on a bread-like product, and they were eventually trading it for tin. And Cornwall is famous for its tin mines. So part of it is the best clotted cream comes from Cornwall. The notion of scone, scone, as we said earlier, is, is, is a little, it's a Gaelic word meaning a small stone. That kind of a drop biscuit came from the Celtic world. To this day, um, the Scots are given the credit for having for being the best bakers in the UK. They have the lightest hand. Um, I think the Welsh produce the best afternoon and high teas in all of the UK. They're, they have um, they're very sensitive. Well, Wales has very good water, um, and they have their own tea blends that are designated just for their water. But what makes a Celtic uh, tea, I think, really special is the as one of them said to me, you know, the, the only thing the English supplied for the whole notion of afternoon tea, other than the idea, is strawberry jam. All of the rest of it came from elsewhere. The tea came from elsewhere. Uh, we provided the clotted cream. We provide the scones. We've got the best cheeses, and we've got the best bakers. Hmm. Interesting. Also, it's considered the whole notion of hospitality and hosting the stranger is extremely Celtic. Even the Viking raiders noted in the early centuries that the Irish usually located a house at a crossroads with the door left open, even in those troubled times, and that was to invite the stranger in. And once somebody came in and you fed them, you were responsible for them as long as they were under your care. That whole notion of when I was in Ireland, um, one woman said to me one time, we were staying in an Airbnb and she wanted to serve an elaborate breakfast and we had to make another deadline and I, and I said I really I don't think we've got time for that this morning and she said well surely you've got time for tea in the hand and I said I've never heard of that what is that she says I'll bring it up to you it's what you have in your hand when you're pottering around getting your things ready 
And this is the same woman who the day before, um, right after breakfast, she started saying, well, we need to get ready and do the baking for tea. And I said, well, who's coming? She said, I don't know, but I have to be ready for anyone. She said, that's what you do. She said, what, you'd leave early with the curse of the house on you and no tea? <laughs> that is a particularly... That is, that's a responsible hostess. <laughs> yeah, but that whole notion of um, tea is a way to connect with people not just a way to have a very formal setting and show off. That's I think, is very Celtic. Well, uh, before we go, I just I wanted to mention um, the fact that, in case people aren't aware out there listening, that uh, tea has become quite, uh, and the afternoon tea has become quite a tradition now in America. I mean, in fact, it's enjoying a bit of a renaissance. And is there are tea salons, tea restaurants, mm-hmm. Uh, major hotels do offer an afternoon tea. When did all this start? I'd say about 15 years ago. Uh, But it keeps evolving. At first it was the renaissance of afternoon tea. It used to be little old ladies with um, blue permed hair. Yes, the dainty sandwiches and the gloved hands. Right. When I worked with the St. Regis, it was very interesting. A lot of the men who worked in the investment houses near the hotel would come in in the afternoon to do business deals over tea because they weren't blotto from having cocktails. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people who started having their own businesses and working from home but wanted to have a meeting and didn't want someone to come to their home, so the focus is on the business. They started to, a lot, particularly when a lot of women went into business for themselves, they started meeting people for tea because it was a way to work but not invite them to your house where you're busy being the hostess. Somebody else takes care of that. And then there began to be this whole interest in um, green teas again and where they came from. How did you take care of them? What about white teas? What about um, a lot of the the rise for young people when I was working for the hotel? They were particularly interested in the whites and the greens and the oolongs. They associated the black tea and the meal with a granny thing, but not the Asian teas. And then there became to be all the whole notion of using tea as an infusion uh, as part of a cocktail and also cooking with tea, either the leaves or the infusion of thanks to also again the you know the Chinese they always they use a lot of teas the smoked teas and in, in absolutely duck and chicken preparations and I would have never had a green tea latte except I had one in the um, waiting room in the hotel in not the hotel in the um, airport in Tokyo mm-hmm. that was a new way to entertain with tea you mentioned um, as part of a cocktail and. It is not uncommon to see, both here and in the U.K., um, perhaps a glass of champagne offered at tea also. Um, That was considered perfectly appropriate, especially um, if you were going to have gentlemen join you for an afternoon tea. Because gentlemen don't want to drink tea. They want to drink. Come on. (laughs) Also, it was in the Victorian era when you served a proper afternoon tea. It was considered perfectly legitimate to offer a pot of coffee at the same time. And Mm. in the winter, you would have sherry for the gentlemen and champagne for the ladies. And it was also really fun. If gentlemen were invited to tea, it was their job to hand around the plates. The lady would still be responsible for, for mixing the tea, for mixing the tea or giving the directions for that. The other two English tea meals I wanted to mention that are still very much alive all over the U.K. are what's called a cream tea. People often think, well, that's because you put cream in the tea. No, you don't. That's much, much too rich for most of us. A cream tea is scones and clotted cream and jam. So it's what you eat, not it's what you It's what drink. you eat. Mm. And then Eleven's is, is a, a British version of our 
um, coffee break. If you worked in an office in the UK, somebody would come around in the time when I lived there with a little trolley with um, tea and snacks on it uh, from desk to desk. That's Elevenses. Or is it, oh, you're at doing, about eleven o'clock. Seriously, you know, by eleven a.m. in the morning. Yeah. But, Interesting. So you, all of those meals are still available in the UK today. Such fascinating information about a cup of tea. So next time you're sipping your cuppa, think about all the different customs and and uh, foods and the porcelain, if you don't have the, 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 the bone china, that go along with it. Elizabeth, it's always fascinating to talk to you about, about teas. And thank you so much for sharing your information and, and joining us today on A Taste of the Past. Thank you, Linda. And it's the world in a teacup. There you go. (laughs) And thanks for listening. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and this is A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.